0: My name is Greg Howe. Uh, one of the ways I serve here at church is to serve on the preaching team. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. Um, one of our ushers would be happy to get you a Bible. We're in the early stages of a series called Eastertide. Um, practicing the resurrection. And the reason we're doing this is because it's so easy in our culture to live holiday by holiday, isn't it? Like you kind of finish Christmas, then you go on to New Year's, and then you hit Easter. But Easter was a cosmic event. And the implications of Easter have been reverberating out from Jerusalem to Judea to the very ends of the earth. And year after year, century after century, the implications of Easter continue to roll out. Like when you toss... I mean, it's not even a pebble, right? You toss a giant mountain into a lake, and you watch um, the tidal wave of change that begins to occur. And so we're spending about seven weeks immersing ourselves in Ephesians, which is a book that helps us ask the question, what does it mean to live the resurrection? And Ephesians starts, as Rich reminded us two weeks ago, with reminding us that because of the resurrection, you are now seated above with Christ, in the heavenly realms, and we're going to then go on in a few weeks to talk about what does it mean to stand in Christ and to walk with Christ as we live out the resurrection. So this week, we're going to continue that theme of what does it mean to be seated above with Christ. And Rich helped us with that two weeks ago. Glenn Packiam, who was a guest speaker last week, helped us think about if you're raised with Christ, you actually have a mission and a purpose that God has given you. I want to suggest that if we've been raised with Christ, in part, we've been raised as witnesses. And if you look at the text of Ephesians 3, 1 through 18, you're going to note, or sorry, 1 through 13, you're going to notice that we're witnesses that we've seen something that God has done. We will now bear witness to it with our words and our lives. And then we will actually be living witnesses to all of creation and to the powers that oppose God that he actually reigns. And so that's what we're going to look at um, this week together. But as I was thinking about living and practicing the resurrection, It occurred to me that that's pretty hard for most of us, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to think I'm seated above with Christ, but the actual reality is I don't live up there most of the time. I live way down here, right, in the day-to-day. And as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me we experience that all the time, right? Because if you're walking around New York City, this is how you experience New York City. Because my friends are like, oh, wow, you guys have such an amazing skyline and such beautiful buildings. And I'm like, honestly, as a person who walks um, a good portion of time to work, I don't notice any of the beautiful buildings above me, I don't know what the skyline looks like, I don't even notice the incredible diversity of people because I am not looking at the people, because when you are walking in New York City, you don't look at the people, you look between the people, like how am I going to weave my way through that massive humanity to get where I'm going, right? Like, as I cross the street, I am thinking, I'm going to walk between you two, and so if you could part just a little before the car comes this way, I will make it to the curb, right? Right? And for so much of us, our lives are lived at street level, right? It's busy and complicated with life and work and family. It's distracting with all of the things Rich prayed for us this morning, right? That many of us are struggling financially, relationally, emotionally. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how what we're doing fits into the bigger picture. And all you know is, I just have to get through all these people to get there somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where it is. And when you live at street level... That's the challenge. And what living the resurrection, right, being seated with Christ helps us do is it helps give us a new picture. Because when you get up high enough, suddenly you have a different perspective of what's going on. Rather than a mass of humanity and you're just trying to make your way through, suddenly you begin to see how everything is organized ahead of you. You understand how the traffic is beginning to flow. You understand how the streets connect together. You begin to see oases up in the distance that you could not see where you were in the street, but if you just got high enough, you'd see out there, there's a giant open space that God is preparing for you, an oasis where you can take a breath, where you can rest and you can play and renew yourself as you go back out. When you get high enough, when you live and practice resurrection, suddenly the disorder that we live in begins to fall into a larger pattern of order, and you begin to see beauty, and you begin to see hope. And that's what we're doing when we practice resurrection and figure out what does it mean to be seated with Christ above. And Paul, in the text, says this, if you understood how good it was from God's perspective it would transform the way you live. And we looked at the last two weeks, and we're going to continue. What does it mean? Not just that we're seated with Christ above, but we are seated together with Christ above because God is not just saving like you individually and you individually and you individually into relationship with him. He's saving us collectively and saying, together as a community, we are seated above with Christ. And that changes everything. Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for, the administ- for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that, through the Gospels, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this Gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. For this reason, I, Paul, sorry, Part of what Paul says, if you notice in that first section, is that he has witnessed something. Something has come to his vision that was unexplained before. Right? He says, "Um, I have revelation and insight, and it has been revealed this great mystery that God has held back from the beginning of time and is now being revealed. Now, at the time of the New Testament, mystery was not like a whodunit or police procedural, like what went wrong. The idea of mystery was God had something that he knew that nobody else knew. And finally, he was going to reveal it. And what was mysterious and unknown before now is known. And Paul goes, this is the great mystery that God had planned from the very beginning of time and is now coming into fulfillment in the day of Christ Jesus. You Gentiles belong to the people of God. Right? And we know what this is like because we studied the life of Abraham just a couple months ago. God had promised to Abraham, you, through your family, I'm going to make you uh, to a great nation and you will be a blessing to the peoples. But if you read through the New Old Testament, you realize the nations didn't seem to get blessed. I mean, Israel couldn't even hold on to its own blessings, right? You got occasional glimpses. Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon, thinks... Your God's pretty good. Elijah cures a couple people over there outside of Israel, but by and large, the nations go untouched. Then Jesus dies. The disciples are given the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit falls, and suddenly the church begins to grow from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And Paul goes, this is the great mystery that God has been planning from the very beginning, and now you get to see it come to pass through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of God. Those of you who are far off are now being brought near, and you're encountering the Lord. And you're beginning, you're being wedded into this family that God has created for himself. And this is incredible news. I was thinking about this just a couple days ago. I heard a story from one of the University chapters at Brooklyn College. A woman named Jamala, um, who's one of our leaders there, was at a prayer meeting. And as she was praying, she was listening to the Lord. And the Lord put on her heart um, one of the students that she knew um, at the college named Mahadi. Mahadi's a Muslim man who's a student of the college. And she just felt like the Lord was saying, you need to ask him about where he is in relationship to me. So she did the only reasonable thing a young Christian woman could do. You obey the voice of the Lord. So she left the prayer meeting and was walking campus, and lo and behold, who does she run into but Mahadi? And this young woman comes up to this young Muslim young man and says, well, um, I was at this prayer meeting, and I feel like uh, the Lord told me to ask you this question, where are you in relationship to him? And Mahadi looked up and said, that's amazing. That's the exact question I've been wrestling with the last couple days. Why do you ask? And she said, "Well, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is calling out to you right now. He wants you to follow him." And so she opened the scriptures and they began to study it and he said, "I want that." And she led him to faith, and she said it was amazing to see the joy and the excitement and the life just wash over his face as he came to know Jesus. Because, you see, what Jesus is doing is this amazing thing. Paul says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15... God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The amazing thing about what happened for Mahadi was this. God says, you thought you were so close and yet you were still so far off, but here is the truth. I am the Lord your God. Will you come to me? And he did it through the voice of an obedient woman who thought, I am listening to the Lord in prayer, right? When we celebrate what God is doing in bringing two communities that seem so far off and wedding them together, God is worshiped and God is praised. To those um, who have tried to be holy and those who aren't trying so hard, God says, you belong to me. I am the Lord your God. Will you come to me? And he whispers it through Bible study and through prayer and through the voice of Christians who speak. He talks to those who've always felt like they've known him and those who've just meeting him for the first time and they hear his invitation sung out. I am the Lord your God. Will you turn to me because you could be my people if you would just say yes. Right To those who've been in active rebellion against him and those who don't even care enough about him to um, try to rebel, he says, look, I am your God. Will you agree to be my people? And the amazing thing that God does is he takes communities that are so far apart, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, young and old, and he says, together I desire to weld you into one new people who will belong to me. I will make you into a new family that will belong to me. I will make you into a single body that sings my song. I will make you co-heirs together of the incredible promises that God offers you. Will you accept my invitation. And if we embrace this, if we would choose to uh, delight in what God is doing, it would change everything. You see, when Paul says, you are now co-heirs together in Christ, what is he saying? He's saying, basically, you are a family together far more connected now through Jesus Christ than anybody who shares your name, shares your DNA, or shares your family table. You are a family together. Long after we've stopped celebrating Christmas, we will still be, with our biological family, we will still be enjoying each other's company in eternity. And if the Christian church is truly a family, it means that everybody is welcome, right? Because that's fundamentally what family is. Young or old, nice or cruel, rich or poor, succeeding or failing, when you open the doors to your home and said, family, come home, everybody is welcome. And the body of Christ is to be the place where we go, Are you a follower of Jesus? Then no matter who you are, no matter what you are, no matter what you've done or have not yet done or have just thought about doing, you are welcome here. We're not just co-heirs together. We are one body. And if we are one body, it suggests at least one thing nobody should ever hurt alone. I'm a little sick right now, (coughs) so I'm going to be coughing a little bit through this talk. It's a disease of the upper respiratory tract. I have a cold. And what's amazing is even though it's a disease that's only affecting like this part of my body, my entire body is not enjoying this experience, right? It's not just like my lungs going, this is bad, but it's my head thinking I'm sick and I'm coughing. I can't take this anymore. It's the abrasions around my nose, even though I'm using tissue with lotion, which is like one of God's best gifts ever. (laughs) Right, My upper back is really sore because I've been coughing for about two weeks now, so right as you keep coughing, you're straining your back, and I'm getting older, and now my lower back hurts because I didn't sleep well last night. Right, My entire body is responding to just one area of pain. And at least I'm sick. Honestly, the reality is if I get a paper cut, my entire body starts obsessing about that. The reality is right when even a small part of our body hurts, the whole body should hurt. And if we are a body together, then when one of us hurts, all of us should embrace that and begin to engage it. Nobody should hurt alone in the church. If we are family and all are welcomed, and if we are one body, then all of us hurt together, whether we're the appendix or the brain, right? The heart or the toe. If we are co-sharers of God's promise, it means this. Nobody is going to get left behind because, right, God himself has said, I promise you, every one of you, I will complete the good work I began in you until on the day of Christ Jesus, you stand before me and I will go, you are perfect. And we go, yes, we are, finally, right? One day, all of us will look enough like Jesus that the Lord goes, I see our family resemblance now. One day, we will be free from sin and despair and pain, and the Lord will go, yes, this is what I want. And if we are co-sharers in the promises of God, as Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 3, it means then we together will encourage and carry one another across that finish line, propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, and serving one another. And when we begin to live out the reality of what it means to be a reconciled and reconciling community, as Paul talks about in this passage, the world begins to change. I think of this because I think of an experience I had in college. I was a student at the University of Chicago involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and the woman on the left is a woman named Jeanette Yep. She was my staff worker. And we were at our fall conference. um, probably this would have been uh, late October in um, 1990, and I was at a lunch table, and Jeanette and Peter, who was right next to her, were sitting with um, a student named Ming. Ming was a graduate student working on his PhD. Ming was Vietnamese, and he and his family had escaped from Vietnam after the fall of Saigon, like so many hundreds of thousands of people, um, by being boated out of Vietnam. For those of us old enough, right, we remember the stories of the boat people. Jeanette discovered this about Ming's history as they were eating lunch, and she said to Ming, just quite an unassuming way, Ming, I hope you'll forgive me and my people for the wrongs the Southern Chinese did to the Vietnamese people as you were escaping Vietnam. And Ming said, you know, Jeanette, you're my sister in Christ, of course I do. Well, they went on to their conversation, but Peter, who was a staff worker as well at the time, now teaching in seminary in Chicago, pulled Jeanette aside after that conversation and said... Could you explain that conversation? What was that about? And Jeanette said, well, you know, as Vietnam was falling, the people who boated the Vietnamese out of Vietnam to Hong Kong or the other refugee camps were often people from the southern part of China, where my family is from. And the reality is um, we treated them very badly. We shook them down. I mean, every, all the money they had, all the jewelry, anything of value, we demanded from them before we put them on a boat. And if they were lucky, they got to Hong Kong or Thailand or the other refugee camps. But um, more frequently than not, um, these Vietnamese refugees would find themselves out on a boat in the South China Sea and the boat would start to leak. And they'd realize there was no fuel and there was no food and there was no water and they would die. And she said, my people did that to Ming's people and I just felt like I needed to acknowledge that um, as a Christian. And Peter said, but Jeanette." your family's been in the United States for three generations. Since the like early 1900s, none of your relatives were involved with that, as far as we know. Why would you say, ask for forgiveness? And Jeanette said, well, Peter, those are still my people. They're still parts of my family. I may not be blood-related to them, but that's my people. So I felt it was important, both for my own healing, but for Ming's healing, to say something. Well, Peter took that thought and let it kind of grow in his mind. Three years later, he was asked to speak at the Urbana Student Missions Conference, a conference we do for college students every three years, and he shared that story as an example of how the gospel presses us not just to be reconciled with God, but to be reconciled with one another. The conference ended and we held a post-conference for international students for um, graduates who were from foreign countries who were headed back to their homes to prepare them to return as salt and light there. But they had been thinking about what Peter had said for about three or four days. And on the second night of that uh, post-conference, the Japanese delegation had a chance to share. And so these Japanese international students, mostly PhD candidates and other things, got on stage. They shared a little bit about what was happening in Japan and how they were preparing to go back. And they did this really unexpected thing. They turned toward the Korean delegation, which was sitting in the audience... And remembering what Peter had said about what Jeanette had done, they got on their knees, right? And this is Japanese, people who are very aware of when you're going to lose face and when you humiliate yourselves. And they said, would you and your people forgive us for the wrongs we committed against your people before and during World War II? We turned your women into prostitutes. We raped them. We murdered your children by tossing them in the air and catching them on our bayonets. We ravaged your country. Would you forgive us? And then they got up and left the stage. Well, <clears throat> the Japanese delegation was thrown into confusion. Like, how, how do you respond to that? Right? So that evening, as they met for prayer and, and debriefing as a group, they wrestled with well, How do you respond to that? These Japanese students weren't even alive during World War II. That was their grandparents. It wasn't our grandparents. We weren't affected. It was our parents and grandparents who experienced this. What do we do? How do you respond to that? They prayed, they listened to the Lord, and it so happened the next night, it was their turn to share, so they came up on the stage. When they got up on stage, they turned to the Japanese delegation, they said, we heard you last night. And then they said, how can we not forgive you when the Lord has forgiven us for so much? Receive our forgiveness as people who have been deeply forgiven by God. Now... That would be a profound gospel moment, but I think they showed the true power of the gospel with what they did next. The Korean students actually then just got on their knees and they said, you know, we need to ask for your forgiveness too. You see, we've hated your people since World War II. And Jesus says, when you hate somebody, you've murdered them in your heart. You may have killed our bodies, but we've killed you in our souls. Will you forgive us? for the ways that we've murdered your people in our hearts. After that night, reconciliation broke out across that conference. The Greeks and Turks began to meet together. Armenian and Christian Azerbaijanis were meeting together. People from uh, Britain and Ireland were meeting together. And they were praying and asking forgiveness, not just for their own sin, but for the sin of their people as they sought to be not people who were primarily Chinese and Vietnamese or Azerbaijani or Armenian or Turks or Greeks, but people whose first identity was under in Christ, who could then look at one another in the eye and say, I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? And for the other person to say, I know, and we have sinned against you. And more important than our sins against each other is our common unity in Jesus Christ. So let's offer one another forgiveness for our sins and then turn to Jesus together. When that happens, brothers and sisters, things begin to change in Japan and in Korea. A Christian ministry started that was designed explicitly to try to bring together Christian and Korean churches together to engage in reconciliation conversations for the first time in 50 years. What caused this nationwide movement of reconciliation to occur? It started with a single conversation between a Christian woman and a young man working out between themselves the dynamics of reconciliation, which began to affect a conversation at a conference, which began to change the way nations began to experience one another. Because when we live out the reality that Paul talks about, not only do we witness what happened, we actually witness to what God is doing. And that seems to be what Paul seems to get at next, right? Because he says, here's the reality. I became a servant of this gospel. The grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone else the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul now says, look, if this is true, if this kind of reconciliation is possible, we have to announce it. To the Gentiles, I tell you, you belong to God now. Come and be wedded to the to the Jews. And to the Jews, look, our family is far bigger and far more massive than we ever knew. We are living out the reality of what was promised to Abraham. We are now a blessing to the nations. Let's rejoice in this. And we make known that great reality The problem, of course, is when you live at street level, when you live down here, it's difficult to believe that can exist, right? Because we live in a world that's filled with racism and hate. Children die for all the wrong reasons all the time. People remain uneducated after years in our system because economic and social realities prevent them from having the opportunities they need. People die regularly still crossing the ocean looking for somewhere safe to live. Right, We see it all the time. We experience it in our families and in our relationships and we experience it as nations and we perpetuate it as people. But if we believe the gospel is true and we accept Paul's commission as our own that we are to proclaim and be witnesses of this truth, then things begin to change. In a world that insists that racism is inherent in the way we exist as a country and as a people and is core to human nature, we disagree and we proclaim God has made us a new family. And racism is not indelible in human nature. It is changeable by the spirit and we embrace it and will pursue it. Right In a world that insists, if it's not our child that's involved or not our community that's at stake, we will say, we are not just one family where we do this, but we will proclaim that God has made us one body together in Christ. So if one community is suffering, all communities should be involved in its restoration. If one family grieves over the senseless death of a child, then all families will grieve. It is our children, not just their child, that is affected, If we live in a world that insists it's about me and my people or my children getting ahead, we will proclaim instead that we are co-sharers with God's promises. And if it's true that spiritually that nobody will be left behind, then certainly in caring for the physical needs of the bodies of the people with whom we will celebrate eternity, we should be engaged as well. Because James reminds us you can say that you have great faith and great care for somebody, but until you actually care for their physical needs, your faith isn't worth much at all. And if we were to witness to this with our voices and with our actions, the world would begin to change. In fact, it's the church's consistent witness in this area where they wedded proclamation of the gospel with living out the implications of the gospel that caused a small minority religion to become the dominant religion of the empire. Now, if you think about it, how could the church possibly have grown? Think about those early disciples. Would you have allowed any one of them to teach a Sunday school class for your child? I mean, really? Would you have elected them or encouraged them to be an elder or pastor? You think like, brothers, you, you." How did a group led by that group of men, whose primary witnesses were women, whose testimony was not accepted by the Roman Empire or the Jewish courts become the dominant religion of the empire? Well, it's interesting. Julian the Apostate, who was one of the last Roman empires actively persecuting the church, said, you know, it's astounding that we cannot stop them. And why can we not stop them? Because they care for our poor in ways that we don't even care for our poor. You'd expect this ridiculous religion to care for its own poor, but they're caring for our poor in ways that we don't. They're rescuing their children and they're rescuing our children. They're caring for their widows and caring for our widows. We don't stand a chance. Sociologist Rodney Stark has pointed out, if all you did as a Christian church was do the things the early Christian church did. You picked up the children that were being abandoned by parents who thought they were inconvenient. You cared for people who were dying of illness or plague, and more of them survived than among pagan families. And you took in those pagan Uh, people who had been abandoned by their own families in time of plague. And you may have, several of you may have died, but more people are surviving in the Christian community. If If you care for women and girls and treat them with respect and help them survive, he said just on a pure numeric basis, it was inevitable that the Christians would eventually overtake the rest of the empire and population. Then you add the Holy Spirit. And it's inevitable. You see, when the church lives out its calling as the church, when it proclaims reconciliation to those who are divided, when it treats the church as one body, one family, and co-shares together with Christ, suddenly empires themselves begin to change. The important thing for us to remember, though, is that we're doing this not just so that empires change, not just so that individuals are being comforted, though those are all good things right? Because when, in fact, we begin to care for those who are hurting, when we do the thing that nobody else will do, their world has changed and our communities may change. But Paul says, oh, that's way too small for God. You see, he wants to demonstrate to the principalities and powers that are opposed against us that they cannot prevail against us. He says this, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And Paul is suggesting this, look, there are spiritual forces that exist out there that have undue influence on the way we experience life down here, right? There are things which are just human capacities that taken collectively seem to have unnatural power over our lives. Some of us may be prejudiced, but you get a whole group of people who are prejudiced and suddenly there seems to be this thing that's racism where it's not just me not liking you or distrusting you, but I'm going to start erecting systems and structures that actively oppress you. I'm going to develop an entire system of way of thinking and working that cause damage to the human soul. There will be ways that I take somebody made in God's image and think you can be reduced to a quantity of what you can produce or how much time you're going to cost and I'm going to judge you and value you accordingly. And those become far larger, far more pervasive, and far more oppressive than the action of any one person could possibly be. And explain he goes, Those kind of principalities and powers that seem to have influence over us are specifically the kind of powers that God wants to demonstrate over my people, you shall have no authority. Because the only authority that they will recognize is the name of Jesus. Right? What are these demonic powers? They're the kind of demonic powers that tell us that cause us to corrupt the gift of our ethnic identity. So rather than celebrating God's good gift, we turn it into a minor God for ourselves to worship. And we define ourselves primarily first around our ethnic identity and our prejudices and our alliances rather than our commitment to who Jesus is. And Paul says, look, when we fight that, and we celebrate our ethnic identity without turning it into a god that we worship these principalities powers step back and they think i used to be able to control you but i have no authority over you because only the name of jesus has authority among that people Amen. it's the kind of spiritual principalities and powers that reduce the god intended partnership between men and women as equals working together to image god in the world and to reflect his goodness into relationships of domination and exploitation and submission And when the church of God gets together and says, we will not function that way, but both men and women are equally created in God's image with equal dignity, value, worth, and efficacy in the world, the demons step back and shudder and they think, man, we used to manipulate these people around this and we seem to have no power over them because only the name of Jesus has power over these people. When the forces that reduce people made in God's image into pure economic calculations of can I exploit you or will I be exploited by you are reversed and changed by the people of God acting in God's name, the principalities and powers that control the economies of the world and the way that we judge people step back and they realize they are powerless because of what the cross has achieved, right? When... The sinister powers that cause us to measure unborn children, elderly relatives, or flawed family members in terms of whether they're going to be useful to us or inconvenient to us at this time are rolled back and put into their place by the people of God when we say everyone has value before God. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity. All of a sudden, what those principalities and powers recognize is only Jesus has authority over the peoples of these worlds, and they may have toyed with them and manipulated them, but their time is done. When we act in faith... To be the people of God as God intends us to be. Literally, the cosmic powers themselves recognize they've been disarmed by the cross. Their time is short. Their fury may be great, but they can't, will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are sustained by the Spirit. We are bought by the blood of the Lamb. And God himself is protecting us. So how do we live out that kind of witness together? How do we demonstrate to the principalities and powers that they have no authority? Let me suggest, in part, it means we should stand with one another in times of persecution or injustice. It means that my commitment to my brothers and sisters around the world will not be determined by national, national lines, ethnic lines, or political lines. But in fact, where there is injustice, I as a person who belongs to the people of Jesus Christ will stand with them, whether it's persecution of Christians in the Middle East or the repression of Christians here in the United States because of their skin color. It means I will care about the immigrant and (coughs) the orphan and the refugee even if they never make it into my country as deeply as I care for the people who are already here, right? It means that I will not find my identity in partisan politics, But I will commit myself to follow Jesus, which will force me across all of those political lines, because I will care for those who are not yet born as well as those who are already born, because my allegiance has been given to Jesus. It means we should suffer with one another and for one another. Too often our concern is largely limited to what can I do without inconveniencing myself? But it's interesting to me in this section of Scripture as Paul talks about what does it mean to weld these two people into a single family that belongs to Jesus. He starts with, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and he ends with, I'm suffering for your glory. He seems to embrace this calling to suffer with them. What will it take for us to become the kind of people who willingly suffer for one another, and with one another, and alongside one another? So much of our culture is designed to make us comfortable and to to be safe, right? From being able to pop in headphones so I don't have to listen to somebody's cries, to being busy and keeping my head down on the subway, to insulating myself from who I will pick up the phone for and who I will not. How do we care for one another in ways that show we belong as family together? I, I think of what Rich asked us to do, right? Those of you who need prayer today, raise your hands and somebody come alongside them. That was more than just physical comfort. Somebody just put your hand on your shoulder. It was a lot more than just emotional support, though those things actually happened. When we did that, we demonstrated to the selfish principalities and powers out there that our concern extends beyond ourselves. When we prayed for one another in that moment, the principalities' powers stepped back and they said, the Lord is already at work there. I do not have sway. It was a small thing for us. Put your hand on somebody next to you, but it was literally the arm of God reaching across the cosmos and pointing out to those principalities' powers, these people belong to me not to you any longer. It means we worship together with joy. It means we do it in ways that live out the reality of the gospel, and then the universe takes notice. Does this have any impact? Well, I think of a story I was reading on CNN a few years ago. You all remember the genocide in Rwanda. About 14 years after... The massive killing of Tutsis by Hutus, CNN sent a group of reporters into Rwanda to see what had happened 14 years later. <clears throat> and they came to a village where they found um, a woman who was a, mas- a master basket maker. She was part of a micro-enterprise program that was making baskets and then shipping them to the United States to raise money for the people of Rwanda. And as they began to hear their story or her story as she was making baskets, they asked her about the young man who was learning the task of basket making from her. And they found out that she was a Tutsi, the people who had been killed, and he was Hutu. They found that she had lost her own family during the genocide, and that he was the one who had participated in killing them. And they asked him about, so tell me your story, and he said, well, just about a couple yards from here... I and a group of other Hutus, you know, we were listening to the radio, the government was telling us to kill the Tutsis, and it seemed like the right thing to do, so we did. So we killed about 25 people there. We had machetes and hoes from our gardens and clubs, and we just basically killed them, including her family. So the reporters went over to her and said, so he helped kill your family? And she said, yes. The reporter said, so why are you teaching him how to make baskets? And she said, if I don't teach him a skill, he's going to die. And she said, I'll be honest, I didn't talk to him or his wife for four years. They were our neighbors. And then they turned on us and they killed us. She said, but I'm a Christian. I pray a lot. And I realized If I don't teach him a skill through which he can provide his family, he's going to die. And they are going to die. I'm a Christian, she said, right? I pray a lot. If I can teach him to weave a basket, I'm going to help him reweave himself back into our community. He's confessed that he's done that. He's asked for our forgiveness. If I can teach him to make a basket, not only do we reweave our lives together, we're reweaving the reality of our, com- our village together. And as we reweave the reality of our village, we're reweaving the fabric of a nation together. I'm a Christian, she said, I pray a lot. CNN didn't know what to make of that. They were dumbfounded. How could a woman whose family had been killed by a young man give the young man the skills that he needs in order to survive and actually thrive because he would make 14 times more than the average Rwandan a day if he started making the kind of baskets that she knew how to make? What allows a woman to give generously of her life skills to the people who have killed her future and her family? I'm a Christian, she said. I pray a lot. And the principalities and powers that are represented by CNN and its global network and all that is represented by the West stood back, slack-jawed in amazement at what they perceive of as inconceivable, what they would declare would be a miracle into which we say, absolutely, it is the grace of God itself, manifested in the church, living like the church, extended reconciliation and hope and the building together of one new people. The prime, one of the primary ways we experience that here is our own church community is that we come together for communion, of course. Because when you live at like this level, it's really kind of an odd thing if you think about it and you watch it from any perspective. There's a group of people, some nice, some trying really hard to be nice, shuffling along, in a line, picking up kind of, you know, a small little broken piece of tasteless cracker, dipping it into a slightly overly sweet grape juice so that what you have is a soggy piece of grape juice-soaked cracker, <laughs> and then shuffling back to their seats. They close their eyes. Some music plays that you may remember after this afternoon and you may not. They eat together and it's not really enjoyable in your mouth because it's kind of mushy on the one side and crunchy on the other and doesn't taste like anything. (laughs) Then they shuffle off into the distance for the late afternoon, maybe a brunch or a nap if you're really lucky and have no small children at home. (laughs) Lived at that level, nothing spectacular is happening. But when you get up, to the resurrection level, and you realize we are seated with Christ, not just alone, but together, you begin to see that moment in new eyes, don't you? You begin to see it's not just people shuffling forward, picking up a little, right, together through the aisles, but it's actually a group of people surging forward saying, I desperately need to be reminded that Jesus Christ died for me and rose again. And they're doing that not alone as they come up in line, but they're going together going, you too? Because I desperately need this. And something. going, me too, let's go together. And they're coming together as a community and family to this table. And they're not just taking a little bit of cracker and a little bit of juice, but they're actually saying, this reminds me Jesus Christ died for us. And the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And the new community is becoming true in us. And we are being made alive, those of us who were dead before. And when we take it together, we're affirming, we're sharing a table together. Because we are a family that is eating together and feasting together and being nourished together and reminded together of our story. And when we head out there, it's not just us shuffling forward toward naps, brunch, or some other activity that we have before us, but it's God himself saying, I have commissioned 1,700 people from New Life Fellowship to be salt and light in the world. And wherever you go, whether it's to brunch or a grocery store, to a nap or to a neighborhood, to your workplaces or your schools or your homes, you are to be my witnesses there. I have called people who are so different, Jew and Greek, slave or free, male or female, into one new body, one new family. And I'm reconciling you to me. I am your God. And you are my people. And the demons stand back and shudder because they realize they have no authority over this. Let me pray. Lord, bring us together to your table so that we'd be reminded who we are and, more importantly, who you are and what you have accomplished to you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.
1: Amen. Let's all stand together. <laughs> oh, that was a good sermon. Oh. Thank you, Greg. Greg with a bad cold. I mean, my goodness. My goodness. Let's, I'm going to invite the folks who are going to be offering communion down below and up top um, to come. And there's no better way to end the sermon than to come to the table together. And uh, we come to one table um, and we take bread that's been dipped in a cup, a sign that we are to be broken and poured out for one another and poured out for the world. And so I want us to pray a prayer of confession before we come. And then... You'll come forward, take bread, dip it in the cup, go back to your seat, and then I'll lead us as we take it together. Mike, if you can put that prayer of confession up, that'd be great. Let's all pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Come forth. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was Take together. Amen. I want to our prayer team to come to my left. And... You know, what does this message mean for each of us? Well, it it means that we are seated with Christ together. And the reality is hostility, as it was between Jews and Gentiles, often fills our hearts. And maybe with not a people group, maybe a particular person. Maybe there's someone in your life right now that you have hostility against. You're harboring resentment towards Unforgiveness, withholding unforgiveness. And yet Greg has preached to us a phenomenal message that the risen Jesus doesn't just bring large groups of people together and reconciles them. He wants to work on the individual level as well, not just in some broad way, in a very particular way in your life. And maybe you're with, you're feeling this sense of resentment and your soul is being corroded as a result of what you're holding on to. And Jesus wants to free you. He wants to set you free. So we have our prayer team here. We are to live into the reality that Jesus Christ has died and risen from the dead, that he has created one new humanity. Can you imagine one new humanity? And we are to live into that reality. And so, whatever need you have, whatever burden you're carrying today, our prayer team will love to pray for you. And we'll stay here as long as we need. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. Downstairs in our shell room, uh, there's a little um a little carnival happening uh to support the Wood family. I mentioned last week about the, the offering that we're looking to receive next week uh to help them get a specialized van. And so there's some action happening downstairs so you can uh, get some more information about that. One of the ways that we join together as the body of Christ to support and love um, a family in, in great need. So um, it's one of the practical ways we're joining together in that respect. So with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you and may he fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the one new humanity that has been established in the person of Jesus through his death and resurrection. And may the Spirit of God soften your heart. May all those hard places and rough patches of your life, may he smooth them out. And may you look more and more like Jesus as the week goes on. And so I bless you today in the strong and the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.